Uh, the book of Genesis is a book of history, right? But it's selective history. This isn't complete history. God wrote this book. God inspired the authors to write this book. God decided what he wanted included, what he didn't want included, as it pertains to his plan. So this is what we have in the Bible, is God revealing himself to his people, to us. Without this, we don't know God. We're just, we're, we're reaching for things, and we're not grabbing hold of anything. But because of God's word, we can know God. We can understand God. I mean, God reveals himself to us, Scripture teaches us, through nature, right? You can go out and you can watch the sunrise, or you can drive up into the mountains, or you could go to the ocean, and you can learn things about God just through observing the world that he created and looking at his handiwork. We certainly have God revealed us through the person of Jesus Christ, but we have today this book, the Bible. God inspired over 40 authors to write the exact words that we have here. Because of the blood that was shed by many people who've gone before us, we even have the privilege of having it translated into a language that we can readily understand. But what is it that we find in this book? We find God's plan. This is what we're reading as we go through the book of Genesis. We are reading and studying God's selective history. We're reading God's plan. We're reading redemptive history. There, there are four chapters in your Bible to really pay attention to. The first two chapters and the last two chapters. The first two chapters and the last two chapters of your Bible are the only portion of your Bible where there is no sin. You've got Genesis 1 and 2 where God has made everything and everything is good and no one has disobeyed God, no one has disregarded God, no one has dishonored God. And so as you would expect, life is good. There's communion Between the man and the woman and God, there's peace and there's harmony. There's no uh, dysfunctional relationship. There's no brokenness. There's no disharmony, not even between man and beast. And then in Genesis chapter 3, man sins. Man disregards God, disobeys God, dishonors God, shakes his fist at God and says, I'm going my own way. And man has been doing that ever since. In fact, we still live in that fallen world. We've got this great promise, though, and this great picture in the last two chapters of Revelation where we see where everything is headed because God does not mean to leave the world that way. God is going to restore everything. He's going to take it back to the beginning. Paradise will be regained. In fact, it will be even better than it was in the beginning, and there will be no sin. So there was no sin. There will be no sin. There is great sin. And this is what we live in the middle of. And what we're reading in God's word and what we're experiencing in our life is his plan. In other words, when we sin against God and when you sin against God, God does not just leave us to to destroy ourselves, but God makes a plan to rescue and save us. He came to Adam and Eve in the garden. He came to them immediately following their rebellion and said, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. There's going to be a child who's going to come. I'm going to send a rescuer and he's going to destroy the the dragon. He's going to kill God's great enemy and he will save his people. He will rescue his people. And then as we read through Genesis, we're reading of the unfolding of God's plan, right? He gets more specific. He gives more details about what he's going to do. He comes up alongside a man named Abraham in Genesis 12 and says this rescuer who's going to come one day, the Messiah, he's going to come from your family. 
I need to choose a family to work with. And he's going to be one of your descendants. And then Abraham has kids and then he had, his kids have kids. And in every line of descendants, there's a child of promise. Okay, that the, the line that God is working through and one day will be the child of promise, the offspring through whom God told Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed. There will one day come a seed, a descendant, an offspring, and people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation will be blessed because of him. Now, we know that person to be Jesus. That's why he's the head of our church. He's the chief shepherd of our church. He's a senior pastor of our church. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our treasure because Christ Jesus is the focal point of God's plan. So you have your Old Testament and your New Testament. Old Testament is history before Christ and New Testament is Christ and after Christ. And now we're living between the two comings of Christ. He came once and he came to save and to redeem. And then he's coming again to fulfill his rescue mission. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. He's coming to part the waters. And he's coming to send God's enemies in one direction and to gather up his people, those whom he loves, those who love him, and to take them to the place that right now he is preparing for them. And so where we are in Genesis, right, is after the fall. It's in that sinful world that we know is, is, is our reality today. And it's watching God's plan unfold. Now, what is surprising and is meant to be surprising is the family that God picks. The family that God chooses. God does not choose things that we would choose. Um, God, God, God does not see things the way we see things. And you would expect that, that, that when we are going to read about the family that God has chosen, that God has set his affection on, that God is working through, that God has great plans for, you would, ex- you would expect it to be a little more like the Cleaver family. <laughs> and that is not the family that we read about. I mean, this is a seriously dysfunctional family. It is a really dysfunctional family. You've got believers in the family. You've got non-believers in the family. You've got mature believers. You've got immature believers. You've got people deceiving one another within the family. You've got people lying to one another and scheming behind one another's backs. You've got moms and dads playing favorites. Okay, if the reality television show, right, has cameras set up in this home, you're surprised. You're surprised that this is God's chosen family. Now, if you're listening carefully, if you're listening carefully and you're plugged into reality and you know how messed up you are, you start to get really excited when you hear this. Because <laughs> you're identifying. Because some of you were raised to think or you were raised to believe or, or culture taught you or whatever it is that the, 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 the good people and the good guys that God loves them and the bad guys and the bad people are in serious trouble. And you know and I know that you're not one of the good guys. You know this. You made this observation at some point. You try to push it down. You try to forget about it. You try to deny it. But you know the truth that God knows. And you know your heart. And you know the sin. And you know the folly. And you know the wickedness. And you know the rebellion. And you know the dishonor and the disregarding and the disobeying of God that flows from your life. Some of you are really in touch with this. You know that that you're a mess. You're just a mess. Well, there's hope. You're encouraged when you read about a really messed up family and really messed up people. 
that God chooses to work through. Now, don't forget, when we keep in, in mind God's story and we keep in mind God's plan, um, God, God actually, he is, he is sometimes choosing the worst of the worst. And he is sometimes choosing those who are really messed up. And he is sometimes overlooking some who, who have it together outwardly. And he's going after those who do not have it together outwardly. And there is a reason that God is doing that. There is a reason that, that God uses the lowly, that God uses the weak, that God uses the dysfunctional, that God uses the messed up. And the reason is that God's plan is not to make much of us, it's to make much of Him. It's for Him to be glorified. So God is glorified and God is seen as great when He works through really sinful and messed up people and does great things in their lives. Through them, around them, before them because everyone looks and there's no way they're giving credit to the guy there's no way because they know like you gotta be kidding me that guy that guy you ever lost touch with that guy for 10 years from high school and then you hear that he's a pastor you're like no way that guy was he was a human abomination there is no, there is no way. I mean, I, I, I never even, I never even bothered praying for that guy. It was clearly a lost cause. And then you get word, and you, you, you realize, wow. Now, if you've got good theology and good understanding, right? You don't think, wow, that guy must be a great guy. You think God is a great God. God is a great God. So we're reading, right, Genesis chapter 28 and the end of chapter 27. I mean, here's where we're coming. We're, we're seeing the, the, the immaturity in this family. We're going to see the immaturity in this brand new believer, Jacob. God is first coming to him now. And we're going to see how he's going to work things out in his life. And there's going to be a lot of parallels, I suspect, for those of us in the room. Right? And some things that will hopefully be encouraging for us, be sobering for us, and help us to keep our relationship with Christ and our desire to mature as, as, as a follower of Jesus Christ central in our life. So let's pray and we'll get into chapter 28. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, God. Thank you for giving us truth that we can have access to. Thank you for making your gospel, the greatest of all truths, so accessible God, for those of us who have been saved, um, we thank you for the account that we can read of how precious the price was that was paid for us. And we could be reminded that real blood was shed. And the blood that was shed was of infinite worth. Infinite worth. And God, that makes us realize how infinitely sinful we must be that it would require such a price to be paid. But you did it, God. You saved us. You've redeemed us. And you're patiently working with us still. So make us grateful. And for those who are here today who are not saved, but who will be saved. We're so glad they're here. God, And we ask that along with your word, the Holy Spirit would pick up that sword and would slay hearts today. And blinders would be lifted. 
and those who you mean to call friends would would see the reality of you and your goodness and your righteousness and your justice and your mercy. I pray they be convicted of their sin and call out to you today and ask you to forgive them of their sin. And on the basis of the shed blood of Christ, that their sins would be forgiven. We love you. We're excited to see what your word has for us. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. So if you remember, we didn't actually end chapter 27. We left off after verse 45. So we've got one verse here to read. Verse 46 of chapter 27 before we get into 28. But it all goes together. I hope you'll see, which is why we left it for today. Genesis 27, 46. Remember what has just happened. Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, sons to Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. Two very different boys, very different boys. God had decided, not because of anything good in him, but according to God's good pleasure, he unconditionally decides that Jacob is going to be the guy. Right? Every line of descendants, okay, there's going to be one through whom Jesus is going to come. So Jacob's the guy. Jacob's the guy. God tells mom and dad this. Mom's excited about it. Dad's not excited about it. Dad struggles with it because Jacob won't go camping with his dad. Right? Esau is his camping buddy. Esau is his hunting buddy. Esau, he's the, he's the man's man. He, he goes out with his bow. He, he hunts. He kills food. He throws it on the grill. It tastes wonderful. Isaac loves Esau. Jacob brings him a quiche. He's not impressed. He's not impressed. Like it just is not doing it for me, son. So he's, he's, he's having a hard time with this. To the point where, okay, God has made it clear that Jacob's the guy. Okay, Jacob even legally got hold of Esau's birthright because Esau actually should have been the one to take over the family and, and should have been the one to get double the inheritance and should have been the one to get the deathbed blessing of dad. But he sold that birthright because he didn't care about God, didn't care about God's covenant, could give a rip about leading God's family. And so he sold it to his brother Jacob. So it belongs to Jacob. Right. Jacob has has the authority. Jacob will have the responsibility. Jacob should get the blessing. But Isaac struggles with this. So he makes a plan. He tries to deceive his wife and his son, Jacob, and wants to give his death blessing to Esau. But he's not the only one scheming in this Jerry Springer family. Right. Rebecca and and Jacob also have a plan, and they outdeceive Esau and Isaac and get Jacob the blessing, which we find out was God's plan from the beginning, which means if you try to thwart God's plan, it's not going to work. You try to deceive God, good luck. That's not going to work. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 113 says, and He does all that He pleases. So He, he gets it done, and He'll even work through our sinful behavior. So this is what he done. Esau finds out. Esau is ticked. Esau gets a to-do list together. There's two things on his to-do list. Number one, dad looks like he's going to die pretty soon, so I'm going to mourn for him. Number two, I'm going to kill my brother. 
And it actually says that he comforted himself with that thought. That means that he was so upset and so distraught over what his life had become that the way he comforted himself was by fantasizing about murdering his brother. So it's Cain and Abel all over again. This is his murderous intent. So this family is in upheaval right now. This family is a mess. Rebecca calls Jacob and says, you need to get out of here. You need to get out of here. We're going to find out another reason he gets out of there too. But he says, your brother wants to kill you. You need to go. Let him cool off. When it settles down, I'll call for you. You come back. She actually never ends up seeing her son again. Never sees him again. But here in chapter 46, okay, this is what Rebecca says following everything I just summarized. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, listen to what she said. I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Honest Christians say things like this sometimes. What does she say? I hate my life. We could use more honest Christians like this. We could use more honest Christians like this. She says, I hate my life. You don't hear a lot of people say that when you show up on Sunday and say, how you doing, brother? You're not likely to hear, you know what? I'm, I'm actually loathing my life today. <laughs> Wishing I wasn't born, actually. Glad you asked. Going to make my way to my seat now. <laughs> See how your hospitality ministry handles this one, right? <laughs> we don't do that. I mean, we, we keep that all a secret. That's all hidden because we wouldn't want you to know how messed up we actually are. So we just try to outdo one another with how good we're doing. How are you doing? I am great. I'm great. How terrible. I'm ter- I feel like I'm going to pass out. My life is a wreck. I'm great. How are you? I'm great. Greater than you are, probably. I'm just, I'm the best. I don't think I've ever been as blessed as I feel right now. God is good. Amen. All the time, brother. And all the time, God is good. God bless you. See you next week. And we'll, we'll do this again. It's very seldom that someone says, how you doing? You know what? I'm hating my life right now. I just, I hate my life. Hey, Rebecca does not have the life is good bumper sticker. She doesn't have that. She's like, life is, is, is not good. I hate my life right now. Okay, she has, a, she has a come quickly Lord Jesus kind of mentality, I think, right now. Okay, you know we're supposed to have that kind of a mentality. Friends, life is not good. Life is, I mean, please hear that. This is a first world problem that we have. Where we think that life is so good and so what do I need God for? Friends, life is not good. God is good. Amen. God is good. There is nothing inherently good about life. Some of you have yet to experience that. But you're going to find out. You're going to find out. Maybe everything you touched has just turned to gold and maybe things have just gone your way and you don't read the newspaper. And so you say things like, life is good. Life is not good. We live in a fallen, sinful world that is in desperate need of Christ. Now, life in Christ is good. See the difference? And God is good, but there is nothing inherently good about life. 
And so this is our first world problem. Things are going so well and life is so good. What do I need Jesus for? And so we're not talking like the early church was saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We have a more when you get around to it sort of mentality. We may say, come quick. We don't get desperate like that, right? Come quickly, Lord. We live in Roseville. We're good. Thank you. We live in Roseville. You could take your time. It's not like we live in, in, in Sacramento or in the ghetto. I mean, Colfax or something. I mean, we're in Roseville. This is a wonderful place to live. Why do people live in Roseville? Well, people who can afford to live in Roseville live in Roseville because they're trying to create their heaven on earth. I mean, we've got great schools and, and great people and great parks and great life is to be had here in Roseville. What do I need, what do I need God for? Life is good. Life is not good. Life is not good. We need more Rebecca's in our churches. Amen. So you know what? I loathe my life. I hate my life. <laughs> life is not good. She's desperate, isn't she? Desperate. She needs God. She needs his help. She's not getting out of bed without God. She's not making it through the day without God. And the truth is, none of you are. It's a delusion when we think that we are. So what is... What is bugging her? Man, I'll bet the Hittite women took offense of this if they heard her statement. I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. That's brutal. You don't want to be a Hittite woman. I mean, she's just grouping them all together. They make my life miserable. But why? If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So she's got two boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau, at the end of chapter 26, we learned, is making life bitter for mom and dad. He doesn't love God. He's not making good choices. The biggest choice he's making that's having the worst effect on mom and dad is who he's choosing to marry. And he's choosing to marry, as Isaac will call him, the, the Canaanite women. He's choosing to marry the Hittite women. It doesn't mean that God's a racist. It means that, that God wants godly people to marry godly people. And he wants those who love God to marry those who love God. If you say that God is the most important thing in your life, then you're going to marry someone who God, God is the most important thing in their life. Esau doesn't love God. He doesn't care who he unites himself to. He's married not one. He's married two Hittite women. Who don't love God. Is it going well for Esau? It's not going well for Esau. Will it go well for anyone else in the Bible. Who, who marries people who do not love God. It will not go well. It will not go well. The godly will not be a missionary. That wins over the ungodly. The ungodly will be a missionary. Who wins over the godly. And this is just more of what's happening. In Esau's life. And it's really sad. And so she's like. We got to get my son out of here Jacob. There's still hope for Jacob. His brother wants to kill him. He's not safe. He needs to, he needs to get out of here. And, and he, I, want him to marry, I want him to marry someone else. I, the, the gals around here, it's not good. It's not good. They don't love God. We know where to go. We know where to go. How does she know where to go? Because they're going to send their son Jacob where mom came from. When Abraham was looking for a wife for Isaac, who became Rebecca, he sent his most trusted servant to the same place they're going to send Jacob. And they're going to send Jacob to find a gal just like his mom. A good and godly gal. So this is what this is what they're up to. So verses one through five now of chapter twenty eight. So then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. 
God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So this is this is interesting turn of events in this family. Okay, Isaac and Rebecca are on the same page. They were not on the same page recently. But they're on the same page. They were working against each other. Now they're working with one another. And they're working for one another. And they're united in their desire for their son. Isaac is listening to his wife now, isn't he? He hears what she's saying in verse 46. And you know what? She's right. Their son Jacob needs a good and godly woman to marry. And so he calls him and he sends him off. He does three things here. He directs him. He's a good dad here. He gives him direction. Son, this is what you are to do. And dads will give good and godly directives to their children. Then he blesses him. He blesses him. He prays over him. I, I, I hope and want the Lord to bless you. Okay, I want it to go well for you. And then he sends him off. And then he sends him off. Verse 5. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. So Jacob is in danger. We need to send him off. He needs a wife. We need to send him off. Where are we going to send him? Okay, Isaac looks at his beautiful, lovely, godly wife. Okay, we're going to send him where I found you. Why? Because this is, this, is, this is good. If there's a godly husband and a godly wife, a godly mom and a godly dad, and you're, wanting, you're praying and wanting wives for your sons, you want your boys and you tell your boys, when you grow up, marry a woman that's just like who? Your mom. Okay, not your mom, but just like your mom. Find a gal who's just like her, who loves the Lord, who has the right priorities, who, who loves you, who respects your dad, who, who honors the Lord. Okay, here's your example. Right, I've got four boys. Say four boys. When you go up, I say this, they're not quite understanding what we mean yet, but when you go up, you're going to marry someone just like your mom. Okay, they're like blonde hair, blue eyes. Well, it's more than that, right? It's more than that. She's a godly, she's a godly mom. She's a godly wife. She loves you and she's setting an example of the kind of gal that you want to marry. And the same thing if you have daughters. You want your daughters to grow up and marry men if there's a godly husband and a godly father, just like daddy. Just like daddy. And so this is what he's doing. I want him to have a good wife. I want him to have a godly wife. Okay, where did my wife come from? Let's send him there. Let's send him there. Lord willing, Lord willing, he'll have his own Rebecca, a good and godly, godly woman. The story breaks for a few verses here, six through nine, and it it tells us what's going on with Esau. How's Esau doing? He's not well. Um, Esau, remember, is not in spite of some things that we'll see and read and some glimmers of what may look like hope. He's not a godly man. He does not love God. Um, he is not a wise man. He's a foolish man. Uh, he is not a thoughtful man. He's a rash man. He, he doesn't think about what he does. He's very impulsive, makes really bad decisions. And we're going to read another one here. So a small break. We're reading about what's going on with Jacob and his pursuit of a godly wife. And here's what Esau's up to. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Esau's thinking, whoops, that's what I've done. Not once, but twice. I've got a pair of them. 
And that Jacob had obeyed his father. So he watches his brother obey and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. And then and then verse six. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Isaac, Esau went and now he's going to do something. And here's what he's doing. He's actually after the approval of mom and dad. As sinful as he is, as rebellious as he is. Yeah, the, commentary, the commentators almost 100% agree that when you look at the original language here and how he made the observation of how Jacob's obedience pleased mom and dad, that's the foundation for the decision that he makes trying to please mom and dad. So here it's been confirmed Jacob is the chosen son and he's the son of the promise and my blessing's been taken and he's the one. He's in this position wanting to please mom and dad, wanting to do the right things, but here's the thing. He makes another really bad decision. He doesn't know God. He doesn't have God. He doesn't know God's law. He doesn't know God's word. He's bound to worldly folly, not godly wisdom. So, so, so what's his, his plan is basically, you know, will, will two wrongs make a right? Let me cover up sin with, with, with more sin. What does he do? Esau went to Ishmael. And took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboth. So bless his heart, right? Two wrongs do not make a right. So he realizes and understands mom and dad don't like that I've got these two Hittite women. Mom hates her life because of me and the decisions that I've made. Dad... Dad is now even willingly and joyfully blessing my brother where we had this relationship and I thought I was number one. So Jacob is now in their good graces and they're pleased with him and singing his praises and so thankful for good obedience. So, so what does he do? Well, I've really messed up here and I've married these two uh, Canaanite women, so I'll just, I'll get another wife. I'll get another wife. And I won't take her from the Canaanite women. That's not a solution. And, and who does he get? Where does he go? Ishmael. The guy who used to beat up his dad. That's where he gets his wife. He's not a Canaanite woman, but it's not much better. What should he have done? He should have repented. He should have repented. Mom and dad are not pleased what I've done because God is not pleased what I have done. I have not honored the Lord. I have not made good decisions. Is he supposed to just try to pile good works on top of all of his bad decisions? No, he should repent. And he never repents. He should say, God, mom, dad, I have not done well. I have not done well. I've disobeyed. I've dishonored God. And he should have turned toward God. But he doesn't. He does what many people do. And that's, let me just cover up, not, not actually repent, not admit my wrong, not confess my sin, not plead for mercy from Jesus, but I'll just cover it up with some good things, with some good stuff. We'll just bury that, won't bring it up, won't talk about it, won't deal with it, and then I'll just spend the rest of my life being a good person. And then maybe at the end, when the scales come out, the scale will tip. But the truth is, is that all your good deeds are going to be like a feather on the scale. And the wickedness is going to be like lead. And that's going to drop it. So we've got this contrast and this comparison between Esau and Jacob. The ungodly Esau is doing ungodly things we would expect him to do. And now God is going to begin to work very personally with Jacob. 
God has big plans for Jacob. We'll be reading about Jacob for almost the rest of our study of Genesis. Verse 10. Jacob obeys, right? He sets out. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Iran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, remember, Jacob's not our outdoorsy guy. That's Esau, right? As evidenced here when he pulls a stone up to lay his head on to sleep at night, right? This is not his element. Remember, Jacob's about 77 years old. 77 years old. And he's a 77-year-old mama's boy in many regards, right? And he's just now at 77 heading out, leaving home to find a wife. This is serious failure to launch. This is a late bloomer. Like he's in his... 70s, 70s, like wheelchair, Advil, doing the whole thing, hometown buffet, and he's just now setting out to find his wife. For this reason, a a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. 77, wow, really? So he's not used to this. He's out camping under the stars. He's used to the trundle bed that rolls out from underneath mom's bed, right? And so here he is in the middle of nowhere. It's nighttime. He's all alone. He's all alone and he falls asleep. And here's what happens next. Verse 12. And he dreamed a famous dream, right? Famous dream ladder, Jacob's ladder, stairway to heaven. Okay, we read about it here. Verse 12. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. So picture this as it was pictured for Jacob. He falls asleep and he has a dream. And God's going to reveal truth to him. He's going to do it through this dream. And so before Jacob, here's Jacob on the ground. Okay, heaven is up above. The heavens open. And there's a ladder. There's a ladder that runs from earth to heaven. And he knows it's going to heaven because who's going up and down the ladder? Angels. Angels are ascending and descending up and down the ladder. And who's on top of the ladder? God's on top of the ladder. God's on top of the ladder. And so this is how it works. This is an image that is, is very helpful for us today. This is, this is the reality of the gulf that exists between us and God. We're not, we're not, we're not born buddies with God. We're not born and and everything is good between us and God. We're born in sin. We're born sinful. We're born as rebels against God, not lovers of God. So there's a gulf that exists between us and God. And many people who don't even um, know the Bible will acknowledge this. Do you believe in God? Some people say, yes, I believe in God. No understanding of Scripture, no belief in Scripture. Do you, do you believe in God? Yes, I believe in God. Do you believe in heaven? Many will say, yes, I believe in heaven. Do you believe that you will go to heaven? 99% of people always say, yes, of course I do. Of course I do. So you believe in God, you believe in heaven, and you believe that you will get to heaven. Now, when they acknowledge that there is God and there is a heaven, there's this acknowledgement that there is a gulf between me and God. And when we acknowledge that we're going to get to heaven, I'm going to cross that gulf. I'm going to get there. How am I going to get there? 
How does the world get there? By building a ladder. By building a ladder. Now, here's what we find out, though. This is not man's ladder. This is God's ladder. And this is not for man to climb up. This is for God to come down. Because man doesn't get to God. God gets to man. Man doesn't seek after God. God seeks after man. Man doesn't go find God. God comes and finds man. Man doesn't initiate with God and God responds. God initiates with man and man responds. This is how it works. We saw men trying to build a ladder to God in Genesis chapter 11 and it didn't go well. And now here God reveals this to Jacob. There's a gulf between you and me. And there's a ladder between you and me. But what people will commonly do today, people who say they're Christians, people who don't say they're Christians, we prop a ladder up against heaven. We build these rungs on the ladder, these steps on the stairway. And we define what those are. And by them, our thought is, we reach God. Now, typically, almost universally, the rungs are religion and good works. Religion and good works. God's good, so I do good works, and me and God are okay. Because then when you ask someone, why are you going to heaven? The answer, almost universally, is because I'm a good person. This is our first world problem, right? I'm not a good person. I'm not a good person, and life is not good. I need Jesus, and life needs Jesus. And I can't build a ladder to heaven. God must come down to me. But we build these ladders and we have these rungs. If I just do enough good works, if I just do enough good works, I'll get to God. Or if I just follow this system of religion, I will get to God. The problem is the the ladder is greased. It is greased. And you're not climbing that ladder. You're not getting up that ladder. Now, the ladder is actually a person. And the person is Jesus. Now, I'm not making that up. Jesus told us that in John chapter 1. Remember the story with um, Philip and Nathaniel. Jesus is beginning his ministry. It was a great story. He's beginning his ministry. And so he's going from town to town. And he's, and he's, he's, he's choosing disciples. And what do we find out about these? They're not who you would expect, right? They're not who you would expect. He's not going after all the good guys. And oh, yeah, I know why. I'm not surprised to find Philip there and John there and Matthew there. No, these are, these are not guys you would expect to find in his inner circle. But he's using the lowly things of the world so that he'll be glorified and get all the credit in the end. So he's going around and he's choosing his disciples. He comes across Philip and says, hey, Philip, follow me. Philip says, all right. And then Philip goes to grab his buddy, Nathaniel. So Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. And says, hey, listen, the Messiah is here. The rescuer, Genesis chapter 3, Old Testament law, the one who is to come. He's here. He's here right now. And Nathaniel says, what? Where is he from? And he says, Nazareth. And Nazareth is just, a, to, you just wouldn't expect that that's where he's going to come from. Like today, you know, if there's going to be somebody who's amazing and special, you know, we're thinking New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles. Right? That's why we love the stories about the athlete who makes it big, but he's from some small, hick, podunk town that no one knows about. So he says, Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. I don't believe it. He says, All right, well, come with me anyway. So Nathaniel follows Philip. And then Jesus says, hey, Nathaniel. Nathaniel's like, what? 
never met, right? So how does he how does he know him? When did you see me? He says, Oh, I saw you, you know, studying under the fig tree. Like, wow. Because that's what he was doing, right? Just a few minutes before, where Jesus couldn't see him. So he's like, You you are, right? He gets excited, he says, You are the one. You are the Messiah because you, you could see things that no one else can see. And you remember what Jesus says? He says, you think that's a big deal? He says, that's nothing. And then he says this to him. He says, you're going to see greater things than that. And what does he say? Think about what we just read. The ladder to heaven. Angels descending and descending. Jesus said in John 1.51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Who's the latter? Jesus. Jesus comes to us. Jesus dies for us. Jesus rescues us. Jesus calls to us. Jesus sends His Spirit to quicken us to see and to hear and to believe. God adopts us. God sanctifies us. God helps us, makes us persevere. One day, God glorifies us with new bodies in heaven. God's work. No ladders propped up against heaven. No ladders. God looks at those ladders and he's like, start climbing. Go for it. Go for it. Here's some oil, right? Go ahead. You're not climbing a ladder, but I will come to you. I will come to you. And what does Christ do? And I will give my life as a ransom for many. So this is what God is, is showing Jacob. And then the Lord at the top of the ladder talks. It's a big deal. God speaks to him. God speaks to him and says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, right? Because Jacob is not a believer yet, but he's been brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So God shows up. I'm God. I'm the God of your father and your grandfather. So he's like, he knows who that is. Oh, okay. Yeah, Isaac told me all about you. Abraham told me all about you. So now, okay, now it's you and me. This is who he's dealing with. The God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Here he is, next in line, right? God told Abraham these things. And God told Isaac these things. Now God's telling Jacob these things. God's going to change Jacob's name to Israel. God will continue to work through this line until Jesus comes. So he makes these promises to Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then this enormous word of encouragement. Verse 15. And it's an enormous word of encouragement when we remember that Jacob, for the first time in his life, as best we can tell, is completely and totally alone. I mean, this is, this is the rich kid who's had everything, right? Who is now out on his own, running from his brother who wants to kill him. He's what probably feels hopelessly and desperately alone. And so what does God tell him? Behold, 
I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is the counsel for every Christian who feels alone. God is with you. Amen. God's with you. We just don't weigh that as heavily as we should. Or believe it. God is with you. Loneliness is super prevalent amongst Christians. Many Christians struggle with feeling alone. Many Christians struggle with feeling lonely. We have the pleas of Christians in the book of Psalms saying, God, where are you? Understanding that feeling of being abandoned and being alone. Well, what is the counsel? The counsel is always God is with you. God is with you. God does not come to Jacob who feels very alone and says, hey, hey, listen, don't forget how much your mama loves you. That's how we encourage, right? Falls so short. That is not his encouragement. Have you forgotten your mom? She loves you. Remember all those little quiches you baked with her? Or he doesn't come to him and said, listen, just stick it out. 18 more days, you're going to be reunited with other family. There's people there who love you and, and care about you. Just, just keep on going. He challenges them with, with no um, horizontal fellowship. The encouragement is vertical fellowship. It, it's I am with you, God says. I am with you. There's great benefit that, that relationships on this earth bring to us as Christians. There is a necessity for us as Christians, according to God's word, to be in relationship with other Christians and to love one another. But we do not need relationships with anyone but God. Amen. God is who we need. God is who we need. When you're feeling lonely, when you're feeling alone, the truth is, is that providence could take even the relationships that you have. You may feel alone now and you may not have seen anything yet. You may feel even more alone and even more lonely. But the reality and the big reality will be, Christian, God is with you. God is with you. And this is all that you need. This is all that you need. God is with you. I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So for those of you who have been left by person after person after person, you love the Lord. God says, I am not like those other people. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's good news, encouragement that Jacob needs to hear. So he wakes up from this dream. What a dream. Sees this vision, the ladder, there's the Lord. The Lord likes him and is encouraging him and is making promises to him. And so here he is. This is like conversion, right? This is new believer. He and God are in this relationship and he's going to now react. And we're going to look at his reaction and see what he does. Verse 16, first, what is he? He says something. Okay, he thinks something and he says something. He wakes up, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So here's the deal. He says, the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Was there anything special or sacred about this place? 
There was nothing special about this place. He's just out in the woods. Okay, Abraham had been there before and set up an altar, but we don't even think he knows about that. He's just out in the middle of nowhere. Nothing special about this place. Nothing sacred about this place. But now there's something really special about it. You ever had God just do something in your life and work in your life and, and, and you now remember the place where it happened? You can drive by it. You can think of it. You can see it. It has, it has a memory for you because God's grace was ministered to you there. Matthew Henry said that God is in a special manner present where his grace is revealed and where his covenants are published and sealed. For many of you, when you come to Veritas Church, there has been so many times where you've met with God here and you've communed with God here and you've worshipped God here. That This place has a very special meaning to you. But, but listen, there's nothing special about this place. There's nothing sacred about these walls. I mean, I yell at my kids when they run on the furniture, but I don't, it's because it's furniture. <laughs> Not because it's church furniture. Like, those are church chairs. Those chairs belong to the Lord. I mean, that's not, the, that's not what we're stressing out about. It's like, no, it's furniture, so you don't, you don't walk on it. Or you, be quiet here because you're in, the, you're in the house of the Lord. So be quiet. Stop enjoying life and having fun and laughing. This is not to be done here. This is, this is not some sacred place. We need to think of it like this. Because that gets us into trouble, and then we're only honoring God in the sacred places. Okay, Christian, wherever you are is sacred ground. The reason wherever you are is sacred ground is because the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It means where you are is where the Lord is. His presence is really there wherever you are. It means that we should see the places where we are as sacred. Driving your car, that's a sacred car. Walking to work, that's a sacred walk. Riding your bike, that's a sacred bike. Coming in church is a sacred church. These are sacred places. Why are they sacred? Because the presence of God is with you. And so you should treat the times and occasions as such. I'm before the Lord right now. I'm before the Lord right now. How should I think? And how should I speak? And how should I behave? It should be to honor Him. To love Him. To worship Him. That's what Jesus meant when He said in John chapter 4 that worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. We worship in spirit. The Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. God is spirit. We're spirit. You don't have to go someplace to do it. You don't have to get here to repent. You don't have to come here to sing songs. You don't have to come here to pray. You don't have to come here to study the Word. I hope that's not where you're getting it all. Anywhere. Everywhere. Meeting with God. And now, this is what he does. Verse 18 and following. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it. That's good. That's good. He called the name of that place Bethel. Bethel, right? Crazy stuff going on here. So he calls it Bethel. Some of you understand that. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. 
Then Jacob made a vow. So this is what he does following this dream, this vision, God speaking to him. He's going to pray to God. Going to pray to God. He's going to make some promises to God. He's going to, to, to make a vow to God. So what we have here, I think, is a really interesting look at, at an immature prayer. What we have next is an immature prayer. Now, it's, he's, he's brand new, right? He's brand new to this. So we cut him tons of slack. And God is patient with him. God is patient with him. God doesn't come to... You look back, right? At some of you have been Christians for a long time. You remember things you did when you first became a Christian? You remember the things you did? Remember the things you said and the, the CDs you burned and, the, and the, the verses you quoted and the theologies you believed? I mean, it was... It was, it was probably some crazy things in your history. You remember how you prayed and how you communed with God? I can't believe I prayed like that. Well, so we're patient with Jacob, right? We understand this. We cut him some slack. God is totally patient with him because Jacob's immature. But we do see some interesting things in his prayer life here in this vow that he makes to God. And it should cause us to evaluate our own prayer life. Our own communion with God. So, so three observations. Let me... Let me read let me read what he says and then three observations if you were really listening to Curtis's prayer he was he was alluding to what we're going to talk about right now So he called the name of that place Bethel verse 20 then Jacob made a vow saying If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So I think there's some, I think there's some immaturities in his prayer. I think there's some things that he doesn't quite understand yet about the Lord that he will. I don't think he's as wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord as he will be one day. Three observations. Number one. The prayer focuses on Jacob more than God. There's a lot of me in this prayer. Let me read it again with my own emphasis on some of the pronouns here. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. And then he goes on. There's a lot of me in that prayer. A lot of me in that prayer. I remember getting to a point several years ago where I looked back on a lot of the, not so much prayers that I prayed, though I'm sure it was happening there too, but in songs that I would sing, and even some songs that were dear to me and some songs that I loved that were, that were worship songs. And as I went back and evaluated some of them, I came to the conclusion that many of those songs that I loved so much were more about me than they were about God. And no wonder I loved them so much. Because <laughs> I remember singing about these songs that were these sort of anthems to God of what I planned to do for Him. I remember one song, I would do anything for you, God. If I could have just one thing, I would choose you. I would choose you. I'd swim a thousand miles. I'd... And I'm singing this song, right? And I'm like, I barely got out of bed for God this morning. And I'm, I'm pronouncing that I'm going to swim a thousand miles for him. And I'm going to run, you know, and across deserts just to be with the one that I love. Is this really about God? 
Or is this about my godly intentions? Listen, God is not pleased with our godly intentions. It's not like God hears that and says, that is so sweet. That is really, really sweet. I, and I know you mean it. God bless you. I, me bless you. I know that you mean it too in your heart. I know you're not going to do it. You're not even going to come close, but you mean it, don't you? Yes, you do. God is not pleased with our godly intentions, right? He says, flap, 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 flap. Lips are close, heart far from me. God says about that. It's just lip service. But we can have the satisfaction that comes from declaring our intentions to God. We can feel really good and really spiritual and really godly when we make vows to God and commitments to God. But friends, it doesn't mean anything if we're not following through. Okay, God is not interested in our intentions. God is interested in obedience. Obedience. A couple other things that all really come together. Number two, the prayer implies doubt in God's willingness and or ability to fulfill his promises. Because what's the first word of this prayer? If that's not a good word to start a prayer with. If real if. And then what does he rattle off? He rattles off all the things that God promised to do. If that implies there's some sort of doubt. If the word was since that would be different. He's not saying since God is going to do all these things, I am going to do this. He's saying if God does. So it's up in the air. I'm not sure if God is going to do this. Immature Christians, mature Christians, we can live like this where we don't really believe God and don't really believe his word and don't really believe his promises. It's just this sort of if we'll see. And we're called to live by faith, which means that you obey God before he works it out. (laughs) You don't wait for him to work it out. It's much easier to obey God after he works it out. Or, Or it's much easier to obey God when we see signs of him working it out. Okay, what about when you see no signs of God working it out? And it doesn't look like you're any closer to this prayer request being answered. Are you going to obey God? Are you going to be faithful? We have promises. Do we believe them? God says in Philippians 4.19, Paul says, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Well, if I'm looking for my needs to be met in other places, then clearly I don't believe that God meets all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. It's an if. If, but you haven't yet, God. No, he has. He has. He has. Well, if you would meet this need and well, what's your need? Well, that's a bad need. (laughs) And you don't need that. You need this. This is better for you. Well, I don't like that. It doesn't taste good. Well, eat it. It's good. It's like when you're a kid. It's broccoli. It's good for you. And I've got good plans for you. But we have sort of this if, well, this holding out. I'm not sure if you're going to be who you said you were going to be to me, God. I'm not sure if you're going to do what you said you were going to do. And God's saying, I am. I am who I said I am. And I've done what I said I would do. The cross and Christ. Or Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Well, but I'm trusting in you, God, and you're not caring for me. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Do you mean that you don't feel like he's caring for you? Okay, I understand that feeling. I understand that. 
And God's people for millenniums have understood that feeling. That doesn't make it true. He cares for you right now. Loves you right now. Doing best for you right now. Cares for you. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. We really believe that. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Matthew 28, 20. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Not until. right? I'm with you always to the very end of the age. But Jacob's new to this. There's still some reluctance, it would seem. There's still some doubt in the ability and the willingness of God. And we see it in his response and in his prayer. And then finally, the prayer does include bargaining, doesn't it? Bargaining. Conditional. Oh, I think God's patient with Jacob here. He's really patient with him. Right, who is man to talk to God like this, right? I mean, this is basically, we say, well, okay, God, here's the deal, right? If you, if, if you hold up your end of the bargain, huh? All right, if you do that, here's what I'm going to do. Like he's sweetening the pot, right? For God. And what does he say? I'll let you be my God and I'll give you a tenth of everything that I have. And that's how he's closing the deal with God. I'll tell you what, you, you give me, Right, you, you make me rich. You give me all these things you're talking about giving me. I'll tell you what. We read this and think, like, I don't read it this way. But we may read it and say, wow, that's, a, that's awesome. That's amazing. He's giving him 10. That's a lot. 10%. But you're misunder- we misunderstand, right? It's all God's. It, uh, it's 100% God's. It all belongs to God. So what is he saying? God, if you, if you make me rich, I will give you 10%. So it's in your best interest, God, right, to make me rich. You see how this works, Luke? Because it's a percentage thing. So the more you give me, the more you're going to get back. So if you give me a lot more exponentially, your cut, your cut, right? That's how he's talking. Your cut is going to be, it's going to be better. And like, that's God, like this welfare program for the Lord. Like, this is, this is really good. Or I could just, God's thinking, well, I could just keep it all. Right? And give you, now I can just kill you and give you nothing and then I get all the money and that's a really sweet deal. Did you look at it from that side, you know? Jacob, I think that's a better plan. God doesn't do that. God is patient with him, right? Good, godly, immature intentions, right? That he has. Okay, he wants to give something to God. He's not quite, not quite seeing everything, right? And the other thing is almost even more humorous, right? When he tells God, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll let you be my God. He's like, did you not see the stairway? <laughs> Are you misunderstanding uh, my ladder metaphor here? Because this is what he says to God. If, if, if. Okay, God, I'm hearing these promises you make. So if you do the things that you said that you were going to do, then, right, middle of verse 21. This is conditional. It's conditional. God, if you hold up your end of the bargain, then... The Lord shall be my God. All right, this is where we turn things upside down and we hear about how great God's love for us is, which is true. How great God's affection is for us, which is true. 
that God has elected us and chosen us and saved us, which is true. And then we turn it on its head when we think that it's all because of how great we are. And that's not true. Jacob, right? Oh, so you want me coming after me? I don't see giving anyone else a dream. I'll tell you what you come through on your end. You could be my God. Not quite, right? When there is a covenant, the greater party always sets the conditions. Now, we need to hear this. Because Christian friends, conditions have been set. The greater party sets the conditions. God doesn't come to us and say, hey, listen, I want to be your God and you seem like a great guy. And uh, I'd like you to be one of my minions. And uh, here's what I'm willing to do. And what are you willing to do? You know, what, tell me what your gifts are. What are your talents? What are your abilities? Because we've got, we've got some areas we're lacking in heaven. And we could really use some more of that. Great. Okay, so you give me this. I'll give you this. And we'll have this sort of partnership. This is not how covenant works. This is not how covenant works. Okay, the good side is God says, listen, I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm going to save you no matter what. I'm going to take care of you no matter what. I'm going to be with you no matter what. And here's my condition. You must obey me. Obey me. You must not use my grace as a license to disobey me. Oh, well, you promised to do all these things. Yes, I did. But God says, don't you sin more that grace may abound. I'll just give God a better testimony by sinking lower and deeper. The standard has been set. The conditions have been set. James Boyce said, God does not present himself to us for our acknowledgement if we find it convenient or profitable to ourselves to do so. He presents himself as the Lord and issues the command to turn from sin and follow him. It is not for us to set conditions. It is for us to follow. This is what it means to declare that Jesus is our Lord. It means that we must not merely listen to the word and so deceive ourselves, as James says, but to do what the word says. Now, friends, we need a sober understanding today that this is what God has called us to. God has called us to obedience. God has called us to holiness. God has not called us to get away with as much as we think we can get away with and still not go to hell. He's not called us to fulfill our own dreams and and visions and made up callings. He's called us to obey him. And all too often what we talk about as Christians, when we talk about what we're called to do, is some big spotlight dream of how our gifts and our abilities and our talents and our passions all come together and we fulfill this fairy tale calling that God has for us in this life. That is not how Scripture speaks of calling. You know what God has called you to do, Christian? I don't know if he's called you to do whatever this dream or vision or exciting thing that you think that you were made to do is. But I do know this. God has called you to obey him. 
And we must, as Christians, get more preoccupied with obedience than fulfilling our own fantasies. Obedience. Obedience. Well, that's not all that exciting. And that's not going to get me recognition. And that's not going to be fulfilling. And that's not going to be as satisfying. And I don't think that's when I was... That's exactly what you were made to do. That's exactly what you were made to do. And I'll tell you what, I say this in total love because you won't be happy until you do it. And you won't have joy until you do it. And you actually won't be fulfilled and you won't be satisfied and you won't be content until you stop chasing your made-up callings and pursue your God-given calling to be a disciple and follower of Christ, which means to obey Him. And this is how God means to be glorified in you. This is how God means to be glorified in you. Not in you doing great things for Him, but in God doing great things in you. And if God can work in you in such a way that in spite of the temptations and the evil and the wicked and the sin of this world, you obey God and honor God, God is glorified. And our calling, friends, is to obey Him. Not set conditions before God, but to acknowledge that He is God and we are not, and we owe Him our allegiance and our obedience. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great calling that you've given us, the calling to follow you, to love you, and to serve you. God, in our day, when we find ourselves so preoccupied with doing the things that we want to do, setting conditions before you, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts in a way that we are satisfied with mere obedience. That we are content to honor you all the days of our life. And if we never get the things that we want, well, we're thankful for a long life that we got to obey. God, we pray that you would, for your namesake, that you would make us more like Jesus and conform us to his image. So that people would see something good in us. And what they would see is you. And how good you are. How great you are. Our time of communion today, God, as we eat this bread, drink this juice. Cause us to remember the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. So that the worship you deserve would well up within us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.